Okay, so we're going to be in Galatians um, this evening. Um, we'll be in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, if y'all want to go ahead and turn there. But before we begin, I want to remind everyone of the context of this passage. So, Paul's writing to the Gentile church in Galatia, who are being pressured by false teachers, who we know as the Judaizers, <clears throat> excuse me, to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. So, in other words, they're being told they need to join the Old Covenant to inherit the promises God gave to his people in the Old Testament. Now, as we work through this passage, first we'll see how it plays into the overall message of the letter, um, which is a soteriological message, meaning it's dealing with the doctrine of salvation and concentrates on what the gospel is. Second, we'll look at what this passage teaches about the covenants it addresses and what implications that has for our ecclesiology or our doctrine of the church as well as our eschatology, our doctrine of last things, namely, who inherits God's eternal promises and how those promises are inherited. And since I believe the historic um, particular Baptists drew their understanding of the covenants directly from Scripture instead of formulating them for the motive of justifying infant baptism, this will be a distinctively Baptist sermon. So with all that in mind, please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We're in Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may be seated. Now, by this point in Paul's letter, he's already identified the problems with the false teaching of the Judaizers in Galatia and expressed his concerns for the Gentile believers there. He's also given pretty in-depth arguments against the false teachers who were insisting that the Gentile Christians must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Summarizing what Paul said up to this point and looking at the danger those he addresses are under will provide our first point of the sermon, our soteriological point, and that is that we are saved by grace alone 
through faith alone in Christ alone. So relying on Christ plus anything else is a false gospel. So verse 21 begins by identifying who Paul is speaking to. He says, you who desire to be under the law. And these are the ones that he had previously called foolish Galatians who had been bewitched in chapter 3 verse 1. They were the, were the ones that he was astonished were turning to a different gospel in chapter 1 verse 6. So Paul wasn't simply concerned the Galatian Christians were wasting their time with unnecessary regulations. He was concerned that they had embraced a false gospel and were not truly saved. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, we can see that the false teachers in Galatia were teaching the Gentile Christians to observe holy days associated with the ceremonial law of the Mosaic Covenant. Paul said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In chapter 5, verses 2 and f- two through 4, we see the false teachers were also promoting the sign and condition of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. It says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, this isn't to say that celebrating a holiday is sinful in and of itself, or that circumcision for non-religious purposes is a denial of the grace of God. If these things were inherently sinful, God never would have commanded them as good things and conditions of his previous covenants. But Paul is explicitly talking to you who would be justified by the law, as he says in chapter 5, verse 4. And this is the same as you who desire to be under the law in 421. To be under the law, as Paul uses the term here, is to rely on our works, our actions, our own obedience for our standing before God. Even our obedience to the moral law of God, which is binding on Christians as a moral standard and a rule for life and sanctification, is not the basis upon which we will be declared just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous before God. Paul's explicit in his declaration that our salvation before God is by grace through faith and not of works. Faith in what Christ has done is sufficient for our standing before God. And adding anything to that, our obedience, our works, anything, is a perversion of the gospel, a false gospel. And Paul makes the seriousness of this clear in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be anathema. So to add anything to the pure gospel of the redemption accomplished by Christ and received through faith, which we are told is itself a gift of God wrought within us by the work of the Holy Spirit, is to place oneself under the anathema, the curse of God. And to rely on our own obedience to the law is to be under the curse of the law, 
Paul summarized this in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, and explained how the blessing of Abraham had come to the Gentiles in Christ and was received through faith. He said, For all who rely on works of law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now this morning, Casey emphasized the fact that those who are saved by grace through faith are not comfortable continuing on in sin. We were set free from sin to present ourselves as slaves to Christ. But our obedience to God's commands is the natural and necessary fruit of our salvation by faith, not the basis of it. So once again, to reiterate our first point this evening, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you're relying on Christ plus anything, you have bought into a false gospel that cannot save. So next, we'll look at what this passage teaches about the covenants it addresses. Historic Baptist covenant theology rightly understands that there are two main covenants, or you could say types of covenants, that God has made with people. The first is a covenant of works, and the second is a covenant of grace. The first type of covenant is a conditional covenant, with blessings promised for obedience to the covenant conditions or law of the covenant, and curses promised for disobedience to those conditions. In the second type of covenant, the covenant blessings are guaranteed by God and don't depend on the obedience of the covenant people. This is the nature of the new covenant inaugurated by Christ. All the previous covenants between God and man were conditioned on obedience to the commands of God and were all broken by the covenant people. And this is true of both the Old Testament covenants that we find in our text in Galatians. The Mosaic covenant was conditioned on the nation of Israel's obedience to all the commands that God gave them as a nation. Two entire chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, for a total of 114 verses, are devoted to enumerating the covenant blessings for obedience and covenant curses for disobedience to the law. If you read those chapters, you'll find that every one of those blessings and curses is temporal and earthly, and they all pertain to the Israelites' inheritance within the physical boundaries of Canaan. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was also a conditional covenant for Abraham and his offspring according to the flesh. The condition of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, and any uncircumcised male was cut off from the covenant people as a covenant breaker. Genesis 17, 9 through 10 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then in verse 14, God continued, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, historic Baptist covenant theology has recognized that the Abrahamic covenant is special and has labeled it as a dichotomous covenant, meaning it contained two distinct sets of covenant people, the offspring of Abraham according to the flesh and his offspring according to faith. It also contained two distinct fulfillments of its promises, temporal earthly fulfillment for the offspring according to the flesh and eternal fulfillment for his offspring according to faith. However, the eternal promises of the Abrahamic covenant are not based on the condition of that covenant, circumcision, and are not fulfilled under that covenant. They pointed forward to the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, like all the Old Testament covenants, was unable to save. It was established on the blood of a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, according to Genesis 15, 9. But its promises for the children of Abraham who follow in the footsteps of his faith are based on the blood of a very different and better covenant, the new covenant of grace inaugurated with the blood of Christ. He fulfilled every condition of the previous covenants perfectly and bore their curses for his people and made an unconditional covenant between God and man that saves everyone within that covenant to the uttermost. Now, someone may object that the new covenant is conditioned on coming to Christ in faith and repentance. But those who do not turn from their sin and come to Christ in faith are not in the new covenant to begin with, as we're going to see later. Also, Scripture is clear that coming to Christ is a gift granted by God, as John 6, 65 says. And in Ephesians 2, 8, Paul tells us that all of salvation, specifically including faith, is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So in the new covenant, even our entrance into the covenant is guaranteed by God. And entrance into the, and, and the inheritance of the covenant promises is also guaranteed. As Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, it says, in him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, this view of the covenant stands in stark contrast to the Pado baptist view, which is probably the more popular or common view today. So those who baptize infants claim that all the covenants between God and man are conditional, including the new covenant. They disagree among each other about the nature of some of the covenants, such as the Adamic and Mosaic covenants, but they all maintain that the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are only two different administrations of the same covenant of grace. And this leads them to believe that the children of covenant members are born into the new covenant by virtue of their physical birth, just like the children born into the Abrahamic covenant were. And just as infants receive the sign of circumcision as their physical, after their physical birth under the Abrahamic covenant, 
they believe infants should receive the sign of baptism after their physical birth under the new covenant. And this also leads to their belief that the covenant people are a mixed group of believers and unbelievers who must turn to Christ in faith to fulfill the condition of the covenant they are already members of. So I hope everyone here recognizes multiple problems with that line of thinking. It would be impossible to address them all in a single sermon, but we are going to look at what this passage says about the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and New Covenants, as well as the promises given to Abraham and who will inherit those promises. In our text, we find two different sons representing two distinct sets of Abraham's offspring and two women representing two very different covenants. On the one hand, we have the son of the slave woman, but on the other hand, we see the son of the free woman. One is born according to the flesh, but the other is born through promise, as verse 23 says. Those born according to the flesh are also contrasted to those who are born according to the spirit, in verse 29. One group is born under the covenant at Sinai, while the other group is under the new covenant. One covenant bears children for slavery, while the other's children are free. One covenant corresponds to the present Jerusalem, who's in slavery with her children, those born according to the flesh, while the children of the other covenant belong to the Jerusalem above, which is free. And one set of children is cast out from inheriting, while the children of the free woman, those with whom Paul identifies himself and the Gentile Christians, inherit the eternal promises of God. In verse 21, Paul asks the question of those who desire to be under the law, referring to those who were being persuaded to subjugate themselves to the laws that governed God's previous covenants with the physical offspring of Abraham. He asks them, do you not listen to the law? using the same word to refer to the Old Testament writings of Moses. And then he shoots them back to the account of God's covenant promises to Abraham found in those writings. In verses 22 and 23, Paul sets up a contrast between the two sons, who represent two distinct sets of offspring for Abraham. The son of the slave woman, Ishmael, represents Abraham's offspring according to the flesh, the physical Israelites. While the son of the free woman, Isaac, represents those who share the faith of Abraham, the Christians. And this association of the physical offspring of Abraham with the son of the slave woman would have infuriated the Jews of Paul's day, including the Judaizers who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, but felt they were the people of God by virtue of their birth and the God's covenants with Israel. But Paul had already told the Christians, those of faith, that they were all the sons of Abraham and heirs of the promised blessings through faith. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in 3, 28 and 29, he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And it's interesting to note that under God's previous covenants with the physical offspring of Abraham, the groups mentioned here, Gentiles, slaves, and women, all had one thing in common. None of them could inherit property in the promised land of Canaan. But now in Christ, through faith, they were all the offspring of Abraham and heirs of the promises of God. In verse 23, Paul also notes the fundamental difference between these two sons and the two sets of covenant peoples they represent. Verse 23 says the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And verse 29 makes the same con contrast using the terms he who was born according to the flesh and him who was born according to the spirit. And this distinction is vital in understanding the nature of the new covenant. People were born into the old covenant, and that includes all the Old Testament covenants by virtue of their natural birth according to the flesh. But the people of the new covenant are included in the covenant people by virtue of their rebirth, their birth according to the spirit. So no one is a member of the new covenant by virtue of their physical birth. And those who practice unregenerate church membership and claim to baptize infants into the new covenant people of God based on their physical birth to members of the church have missed the greatness of the new covenant. In the original story found in Genesis 17, Abraham had already fathered Ishmael with Hagar when God came to tell him that he would not make his covenant with Ishmael. God promised that Abraham would have another son by his wife Sarah, who was already 90 years old, and that God would make his covenant with that son, Isaac. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 17, records Abraham's response. It says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So we see here two sons, whom Paul says represents two sets of offspring. One is merely the result of natural human generation, while the other is born supernaturally in fulfillment of God's promise. One was given earthly blessings, but the other was heir of God's everlasting covenant. In verse 24, Paul explains his use of this story from Genesis as being allegory. But we need to be careful in how we understand the word allegory here. The Greek word, allegoreo, is generally translated as allegory because our English word allegory is simply a transliteration or anglicized way 
of pronouncing the Greek word. But the modern understanding of allegorical interpretation is not what Paul's doing here. When we think of allegory today, we think of a fictitious story intended to symbolize things in reality. Think of something like the Pilgrim's Progress. Paul, however, obviously believed in the historicity of the people and events he references in this passage, though. At Paul's time, the word he uses here could refer to a large range of interpretive practices, but it's probably best understood here to be a teaching illustration using an analogy and based in typology. While he drew a correspondence between historical events surrounding two historical women and historical events surrounding the establishment of two historical covenants, he also appealed to a commonly accepted typological connection between Isaac and his descendants as the offspring of Abraham and the expectation of a divinely intended and greater fulfillment of those same promises in Israel's Messiah. In fact, Paul had just insisted in the previous chapter that the singular word offspring in the Genesis account of God's promises to Abraham pointed to Christ. And this was a common expectation among the Jews of Paul's time. The singular offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would ultimately be blessed. And this was also Paul's basis for arguing as he did in chapter 3, verse 26, that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And in 3.29, that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we see that Paul's not treating the book of Genesis like interpretive fiction in this passage. He's using an analogy between historic people and events, as well as a commonly expected messianic fulfillment of God's covenant promises to illustrate that the inheritance of God's promises belongs to those of faith, including Gentiles under the new covenant. Now, as we continue on in Paul's illustration, he says that the two women represent two covenants. He identifies one as Hagar, and we know from the story he references in Genesis that the other is Sarah. He says Hagar is the covenant from Mount Sinai in Arabia which is the place where God gave the law to the offspring of Abraham according to the flesh and entered into the Mosaic covenant with them. Paul says this covenant bears children for slavery. And he also says that Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem who is in slavery with her children. So the picture Paul paints of the Jews who rely on their birth according to the flesh or their obedience to the law isn't a pretty one. By their birth according to the flesh, they were born into slavery in a covenant that cannot save under the curse of a law they could not keep. On the other hand, we have the free woman, Sarah, who represents a different covenant. In verse 31, the Galatian Christians are told that they are children of the free woman. And in verse 26, they're told that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So the Galatian Christians are also the children of Abraham, but not according to the flesh. They, like Isaac, are children of promise. And unlike the children of the slave woman, they are born according to the spirit. 
In verse 27, Paul reinforces his point that the Galatian Christians belong to the Jerusalem above by applying the promises of Isaiah 54 to them. Now, to the Israelites according to the flesh, Isaiah 54 was a promise that after the defeat of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, and exile in Babylon, God would restore them to their promised land where Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Isaiah began that chapter by comparing the land of Israel, whose children had gone into exile in Babylon, to a barren woman, but told her to rejoice because she would once again be filled with children, which is what Paul quotes. But Paul pointed to the fulfillment of these promises belonging to Christians, including the Gentile offspring of Abraham through faith who were born according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So just listen to the promises of Isaiah 54 of a new Jerusalem. In Isaiah 54, verses 10 through 14 say, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. So notice how in God's covenant of peace here, it says all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Not only is this quoted also by John in John six forty-five, of all who were drawn to Jesus by the Father, but it also sounds a lot like the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that's quoted in Hebrews 8. There in Hebrews 8, 11, it says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So in the new covenant, all the covenant people know the Lord. Also notice the description of Jerusalem here with its foundations, pinnacles, gates, and walls of precious stones. This isn't a description of any version of the Jerusalem of this world, past or future. It matches the description of the heavenly Jerusalem we find in Revelation 21, whose foundations, gates, and walls are all made of precious stones. This is the Jerusalem that's identified as the bride of the Lamb, that comes down from heaven onto the new earth. Abraham didn't live in this world long enough to inherit the earthly promises of God to his physical offspring, but he looked forward to the inheritance of this heavenly city. As Hebrews 11.10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And this is also the inheritance of Abraham's offspring, not those who are merely born as his offspring according to the flesh. They belong to the earthly Jerusalem who's in slavery with her children relying on their obedience to the law that can, ne- that can only condemn but never save. Now, this heavenly city, the Jerusalem above, belongs to those who are Abraham's offspring through faith. 
those who are born according to the Spirit, whether they're the physical descendants of Abraham or not. And this is a huge New Testament theme, that the Gentiles had become fellow heirs with believing Jews of God's promises through faith. And this is what Paul called the mystery of Christ. So let's look at just one example of this in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul drives this point of inheritance home again in verses 28 through 31, using another Old Testament citation. This time returning to his analogy of Sarah and Hagar. After identifying after having identified the Jews who insisted on relying on their own obedience to the law with the son of the slave woman, Paul goes on to the story of Ishmael's rejection in Genesis 21. There, when Sarah saw Ishmael laughing at her son Isaac, she came to Abraham saying, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, of course, Abraham was troubled by this. But God told him, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And the next morning Abraham sent Hagar and her son away. Now you may recognize the line there, Though, or, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, from Paul's use of it, to make the same point in Romans 9-7. There he says, And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul's final strike against the Judaizers in our passage is to say that just as the son of the slave woman persecuted the child of promise, they, under slavery to the law of a covenant that could not save, were persecuting those who were free. And just as the slave woman who represented God's covenant with Israel at Sinai was cast out with her child, those under that covenant were also cast out from inheriting God's promises to Abraham. Now, there's a lot of theological implications in this passage that I'd love to discuss further with anyone who's interested. But for application, let's begin with just one. Our passage this evening has spoken to the terrible state of those Jews who were under a covenant they couldn't save and a law they couldn't keep. But the same reality is true of all mankind. We were all born into a broken covenant of slavery in Adam. Blake preached a few weeks ago on Romans 5, 12 through 21 about Adam as our federal head, 
under God's first covenant with man. So Adam was our federal head, our covenant head and representative. And as his progeny, we are all also born into slavery under sin by virtue of our birth according to the flesh. This is the sad state of all humanity. Everyone who has not been born again according to the Spirit into the new covenant with Christ as their federal head also has an eternal inheritance. An inheritance in the lake of fire where the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. So if we believe that we, like Isaac, are children of promise and have been granted an eternal inheritance under an unconditional covenant, how can we watch others outside that covenant go to eternal destruction without warning them? So I want us to be encouraged by what this passage tells us about our eternal inheritance as the children of promise. But let's also be convicted to share that message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with others. And let's pray that God would use our proclamation of that message to draw sinners to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us tonight as we leave here and throughout the week, that you would lay a burden on our heart for those around us that are lost, Lord. That you would lay a burden on our heart to share your good news. Lord, you've blessed us with such an awesome covenant. A covenant whose conditions were fulfilled for us. A covenant that's guaranteed by the work of your son. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us to have the desire, the burning desire to share that with others, Lord. Just ask that you would be with us this evening in the business meeting and as we leave. May all praise go to you and just pray this in Jesus name. Amen.